Your son, he's gone. He was weak and foolish, like his father. So I destroyed him. The Osage took their name from Missouri and Osage Rivers. Neukanska. Children of the Middle Waters. Move, said the Great White Father. There are many, so many hungry wolves. Can you find the wolves in this picture? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Week and Foolish Movie Podcast. My name is Mike Tang, and I'm your host for this episode. Joining me are my fellow Week and Foolish podcasters, Albert Liu. Hey, everyone. And Paul Shu. Hello. In this episode, we will be discussing the latest film from Martin Scorsese, Killers of the Flower Moon, which stars Scorsese's frequent collaborators, Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro alongside Lily Gladstone, whose performance I'm sure we're going to be talking about at length. And joining the Week in Foolish podcast for the very first time is someone whose opinions about films and filmmaking I wholly respect. He is someone who I've personally collaborated with on short film projects over the years and has composed music for various Wong Fu Productions shorts. He is a man of many talents, having a degree in computer science, and a law degree, and a master's divinity, and he played drums for Joshua Band in Taipei. So, Jesse Chui, we want to welcome you to this podcast. Thank you so much for being a guest and for joining us today. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me, and thanks, Mike, for the really kind introduction. All right, Jesse. So, looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this film, which is uh, kind of a big, a big deal for numerous reasons. It's Obviously, a film by Martin Scorsese. He's considered an American treasure. And that's enough of a reason to get excited for this movie. It's also the first time DiCaprio and De Niro are starring together in a Scorsese film. And the first time in 30 years that they've been in a film together. This film was also produced by Apple and is the widest theatrical release for the streaming studio at over 3,000 theaters. And this comes at a time where the streaming bubble has seemingly burst and the straight-to-streaming option isn't as viable as people once thought. So I think that's pretty significant as well that they're trying to push this film out to as many theaters as possible. But I think most significant is the subject matter of this film. This is a story about a little-known tragedy that took place in the early 20th century in the Osage Nation. And now it's being brought to light on center stage by these big name artists in a three hour, 25 minute epic drama. And I should clarify that that there was a book about this topic, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, that came out years ago, but uh, now it's being expanded into a film. So lots to unpack on this one. So let's buckle up. If you're new to our podcast, we typically begin with a non-spoiler discussion about our overall general thoughts about the film. Then we switch gears and get into our spoiler discussion where we talk about full spoiler details about things that we enjoyed about the movie and things that didn't work for us. Uh, so actually, before we start talking about the actual movie, 
I actually was wondering how familiar were you all about the historical events of Killers of the Flower Moon? And I guess those listening, if you're not familiar with the history of events and want to go refresh, um, you know, we probably won't, we're not going to try not to go into details about the plot until the spoiler discussion. Uh, but yeah, anyways, uh, were you guys familiar with the historical events or did you kind of just go in blind, I guess? I, I guess I'll go first. This is Albert here. Um, I was familiar with the uh, historical events because I read the book prior to watching the movie. Uh, shout out to Joey Derberry if he has ever listened to this, but he's a colleague of my of uh, mine at work who introduced me uh, to the book. He was a big uh, fan of the author David Grant, who's a journalist who also wrote the book The Lost City of Z, which also became a movie. And uh, yeah, I think we were talking about sort of, you know, J. Edgar Hoover, and he had brought up, uh, you know, Killers of the Flower Moon as sort of like, you know, this this amazing story about how the FBI got started. And they really sort of got started because J. Edgar Hoover was uh, making, trying to make a name for himself. And then he heard about these, you know, mysterious murders of Osage people who at the time were like the richest people in the United States because of these oil head rights they got and, you know, sent a sort of a, your perfect lawman in uh, Tom White to investigate these murders. And I think the book also got a little more popular because I think as more and more Americans are discovering about, you know, these different histories, and I do do mention the word histories in the United States, right? We're, we're Growing up, we're always sort of taught that there's just one history that it, everybody sort of knows the general events, but many, many different communities in the United States have different histories. And what I mean by that is like, some people grow up with the knowledge of an event happening um, to them that's as big as anything, but you know, they don't read it in their own history book in school, sort of like how Tulsa is to African-Americans. But, you know, the Osage uh, uh, murders have always sort of held like a huge place in, in the Osage uh, people. And I think that's also what sort of, you know, made the book a bit of a page turner for me was sort of like, wow, I can't believe I've, I've never read this before. So, yeah, I was I was really, really um, looking forward uh, to see this movie, especially with the names attached and, you know, how. Leo DiCaprio and Scorsese had been trying for so long to just, you know, to try to get the movie made. I heard so many different rumors about it and we're never going to take it. So I was kind of interested in seeing what the final product was. So, yeah, I was really excited for it, to be honest. Yeah, Albert is our resident history buff uh, on this podcast. So we kind of always lean on him to kind of fill us in on all those details. So that's awesome that you read the book. Uh, before, like, I mean, when it first came out. Well, I actually, going, oh, to, to clarify, I actually finished yeah. the book um, earlier this year. I started on it a while ago, but, I, you know, I got, when I heard, they were, oh, they were getting really close to sort of finishing the book. I was like, okay, I got to finish this. So it was a cruise read at, at the end of the day. It's nice. a great page nice. turner, yeah. Uh, I was going to say, if, uh, since Albert is our resident history buff, I'm the resident ignoramus because i yeah i just had nothing i had knew nothing about the subject matter so the only reason i had even heard of this was because yeah because of the people attached to it so that was enough for me to be intrigued 
but yeah, I, I knew nothing. Yeah, and I also didn't know anything uh, beforehand. I only watched the movie uh, yesterday because uh, I had a five dollar coupon to watch the movie from uh, <laughs> Nice T-Mobile. I knew it. I saw that T-Mobile coupon. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so Paul, you're not the only uh, ignoramus on this uh, podcast, so don't feel too bad. All right, let's. So I guess all three out of four of us went in kind of blind about the story. So let's hear about our overall non-spoiler thoughts on the film. And I want to start with Jesse because uh, last night Jesse and I were texting about the film, and he has the polar opposite opinion of 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 what i thought of the film so i'm like you know anytime you have a contrary contrary opinion i think it's always fun to kind of have a have a discussion on that so uh jesse why don't you let us know what you thought about martin scorsese's killers of the flower moon uh i'll read some snippets of text i sent mike last night in short i really did not like the movie it was a chore to sit through <laughs> uh, it felt too slow and too long and generally just a waste of time and human effort. Dang, <laughs> oh my God. Jeez. This is why we needed him on this podcast. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, we were texting each other like at midnight and, you know, it was time to go to bed. So I, I really felt like, okay, I want to know your thoughts. I want to know more. I wanted you to elaborate and what better format to elaborate on than a podcast. <laughs> so can you please elaborate on why you thought this movie was a waste of human effort and was such a chore? Oh, hmm. Actually, maybe you all could kind of share your a summary of how you felt about the movie first. <laughs> and then people have to just keep listening to the podcast to find out why I you know, felt the things I did. Oh, that marketing hook, dude. Yeah. That's okay. All right. All right. Okay. All right. So Jesse hated it. Is that is that <laughs> is that is that it? Okay. Oh, did I didn't hate it. That's such a strong word. I, there's just like a, an absence of like, yeah, not, not <laughs> okay. the presence of hatred. That's kind of worse. <laughs> it's just nothingness for you. Yeah. All right. So, all right, then let's, uh, let's go to Albert then the, the one who read the book and was familiar with the story. What did you think of killers of the flower moon? I, I really, really liked it. I think it's an excellently crafted movie. You know, Scorsese and everything, you know, the same folks he usually works with at the uh at the top of their game. And I I I think they do a good job of sort of it's a bit of a slow burn, I'll admit to that. I but you know, the the thing with me and Scorsese movies is that I always feel like the first viewing of most of the movies I've watched from him always feels slow. It's really you know, which is why I'm hesitant to sort of judge the movie on that, even though it did feel like that uh, for me at some points. It's because every time I watch a Scorsese movie, the second, third, or fourth time, it, it feels faster and faster and faster. So I'm kind of curious to to see how it feel for me with subsequent viewings. So, uh, but that being said, I think it's excellently crafted. I I struggle a little a, a, a bit into like whether I enjoyed reading the story more or or watching it because the the, the movie sort of centers on you know Molly and Ernst Burkhart right there's there's sort of a more intimate sort of narrative at play whereas you know the book itself was was written by David Grant he was a journalist so there's there's sort of a wider more general scope to things um so I struggled a little about you know what 
which way of experiencing um you know the story what bet you know better was for me or more entertaining i guess but um there's no denying the power of cinema as a as a visual language and I, I think they really knocked it out of the park in this in this regard and you could although i don't think it's scorsese's best movie you could feel him sort of taking out everything he's ever learned about movie making into this movie not just sort of like how do you do violence in the most disturbing way but also sort of like his studies on on spirituality and also his 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 maybe you know his his other work and sort of detailing of uh what does it mean to sort of have class differences and and so you see him pulling from all those areas he's worked with before and, and i really sort of like the the end result i do think the movie became more and more powerful uh for me as it went on and, and um i was like wow just for me there's just not many people who could do that for me after a three-hour movie yeah i'd have to really agree with you on scorsese films in that as you re-watch them you pick up on more things and it feels the pacing feels faster uh than the first viewing and i've actually grown to love a lot of scorsese movies after multiple viewings uh i remember like goodfellas the first time i saw it i was like yeah it's, it's fine but then as I watched it again and then again over the years, uh, with each time, I'm like, wow, this movie's a masterpiece. So, uh, yeah, I totally see what you're saying. And, yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, Paul, what did you think about uh, the film? Yeah, uh, I really liked it as well. Um, you know, his movies keep getting longer and longer, but I feel like the quality is still the same to me. Um, you know, 2019's The Irishman, I thought was amazing and one of my favorite films of the year and also from him as well um and I, I found it to be you know like a spiritual successor to goodfellas like a more matured uh perspective on you know the the life of being a mobster and in, in many ways i found killers of the flower moon to kind of be a spiritual successor to the irishman as well uh just because you know very few directors are as good as Scorsese in depicting the highs and lows of living like a lucrative but dangerous life and the consequences of living said life. So um yeah, I just thought that he 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 showed that really well in uh Killers of the Flower Moon. And I think, you know, not only does the film speak to the longevity and consistency of his career, you know, the same applies for DiCaprio and De Niro. Um for DiCaprio, I think this is one of his best performances ever i think he's he, he's just really really vulnerable i feel like in this performance and he also took the signature florence Pugh pouty face and and did it for the entire three and a half hours which was uh, amazing <laughs> uh at, at one point i was like man dude, does he have like a like something in his mouth to make it look like it's permanently frowning. But um, yeah, I just feel like it's a very uh, unconventional performance from him. You know, he usually plays the shining protagonist for the most part. So I thought it was really, really refreshing to see him in this role. Um, and of course, you know, we're going to talk about Lily Gladstone more. Uh, but I, I think, you know, in regards to her performance, I, I think oftentimes it's very easy to, conf to confuse um, not emoting at everything with bad acting. But for her, you know, the, the reason she gives such a incredible performance is not be is not because of her uh, really like 
dramatic acting but it's really through the quiet strength of her performance and i feel like she has like this pained stare that is just throughout the film and and it's really it's it was so impactful and ex- expressive i feel like and and very emblematic of you know the the tragedies that her people suffered through and i feel like you could really see that from her performance and it's a very you know very subdued performance but i think she was really incredible um and i personally think there's no way she's not going to win the oscar it's like it's a guarantee um and i know like I'm I'm one of those people who complains a lot and we have these conversations all the time between us, uh, whether it's in our like group chats or whatever, but we always talk about how like the Academy likes to congratulate themselves by handing out awards, not necessarily to whoever gave the best performance, but you know, maybe politically it there's like a better, there's like a hidden agenda, right? Um, and to make themselves look, you know, inclusive and good and stuff. But you know, hopefully the discourse around Lily Gladstone isn't that much like around that because she's wholly deserving of this performance. I mean, she's, it's literally like one of the best performances of the year, hands down. So uh, I, I was really, um, really impressed. Uh, and I'm, um, yeah, just, I was just really kind of just fawning over all the performances. Also from Jesse Plemons, you know, shout out to him. I think this was my favorite performance from him ever, even though it's, you know, not the biggest role. Um, but yeah, I mean, all in all, like I, I just really enjoyed it, but I do kind of agree with a little bit of what Jesse was saying. Um, the runtime, I'm not gonna sit here and be like, yeah, like I didn't, I didn't feel the three and a half hours at all. Like, um, I, I mean, I personally enjoyed the whole thing, and I didn't think it was overly excessive or indulgent, but I also don't think that it had to be as long as it was. I think there are some parts that probably could have been omitted or shortened, but you know, at the same time, I never felt like it dragged on. But yeah, I, I can see how it it you do feel the light so paul i'm gonna have to disagree with you i think the best jesse Plemons performance was game night and if you haven't seen that <laughs> you gotta watch him no it's you enjoyable watch, you, I, no, I, yeah. I enjoyed that movie <laughs> watch him in that movie he's he's better no than I, he i've seen that it's that's just a really good performance he's yeah he's hilarious uh, in that movie uh but yeah <laughs> Two very different performances, but yeah, he's really good. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm just kidding. But um, I'm going to have to side with Paul and Albert. I, I already saw your letterbox scores, and we all had the same four and a half star review. But yeah, I really, really loved Killers of the Flower Moon. It's easily one of my favorite films of the year. It's not an easy film to watch because you're seeing some pretty extreme evil unfold on screen, knowing that this actually happened to people. But I, I just think it's a masterwork of walking the audience through the historical events. And I can see some casual viewers criticizing the movie for its length, three and a half hours, right? And so, Jesse, I know you said is you know, you thought it was boring and slow. And yeah, you know, I, I, t- I totally see that. I can see why people would feel that. But uh, I feel like it was necessary to immerse the audience into this world, into this community. I personally felt like every scene was important. It felt purposeful. Like I got the point of each scene. I'm like, okay, now I know more about this person. Now I know about what's happening here. And I, I just think it's important to show the world and, and the characters and the events that's transpired or all of it at once uh, for something, a story that's this important, especially important to these people. And I think Scorsese films are huge on editing how the films cut together, all the creative ways that he 
puts these sequences uh, together with his longtime editor, Thelma Shoemaker. Yeah. Shout out to her too. Also in her 80s. Yeah. Right? yeah. 40, 50 years to get working together. Right. And they, they use the editing of the film to really get you to feel the, the impact of, of the story. And I think actually his films fall on a spectrum on one end. You have the flashy stuff, right? Very quick frenetic editing, like Goodfellas, Raging Bull, Wolf of Wall Street, and then on the other end, you have silence. And I, I felt like this movie was definitely more on the silence end of the spectrum where it felt like Scorsese was restraining himself. And I actually love that he's able to play uh, with different genres and approaches to filmmaking. And it just shows what a master of the craft he is. And uh, DiCaprio and De Niro, you know, we, we know what legendary actors these guys are. They're national treasures, just like Scorsese. I think this film gives us another high caliber performance from both guys operating at a very high level. I think DiCaprio's performance reminds me of Robert Downey Jr.'s performance in Oppenheimer in the sense, in the sense that he kind of sheds what he's typically known for, right? DiCaprio's mostly known for his good looks and his charisma. And I think they stripped both of those things, characteristics away from him in this film, right? right? If you think about his character in the great Gatsby. And then his character, in this movie is the exact opposite end of the spectrum, right? From who he's portraying in this film. This character is not attractive. He's got a gut. He's his hair, his haircut is so ugly. And my gosh, his teeth. I love, love it. And the first time he smiled, I actually laughed out loud because I just love how ugly they made him. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So just, I think shout out to DiCaprio, man. Like he, he gave a great performance. I hope he's nominated because uh, I, I, you know, I just feel like he should be recognized for, for the kind of work that he did here. And Lily Gladstone, like, I mean, I agree with you, Paul. I feel like he's one hundred. She is one hundred percent going to be nominated for an, at the minimum nominated for the Oscar. And I think she has a very big chance of winning. I wouldn't go as far as to say one hundred percent she's winning, but I think she has a very high chance for that. I think she just made me feel a lot for her character and not just her character, but her people and, and her connection to these people and these, these events. And, and she kind of carried all that, that weight on her shoulders on the film. And that's a lot to ask for someone who hasn't acted in a huge project like this, right. With all these big names. And so I feel like she, she's a star. She's a star and a star is being born in this, in this, uh, in this film. Okay. So, Jesse, I want to circle back to you. Do you have anything to comment on on our positive thoughts? <laughs> Before we go into spoilers, uh, just anything general that you want to say? Yeah, I wish I liked the movie as much as you guys did. Um, <laughs> right on. <laughs> and, and, you know, Mike knows my movie taste. and But for those of you who don't, like, I am someone who appreciates slow cinema. So it's not like, oh, this movie's slow, therefore it's boring. Like, they're not the same thing. And um, earlier this year, I saw Terrence Malick's, re-watched Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven. And I think in terms of like the geography, there's some similarities there visually. And I felt with Days of Heaven, was it Days of Heaven? Or one of his er other earlier films that... I'm sure it's, I, th I think it's, you're talking about Days of Heaven. Because yeah, like, I, 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 I do here. see the similarities in landscape. Yeah, it's yeah. Like mid, very middle America. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
and I think actually Days of Heaven was filmed in Canada, but anyway. Uh yeah, like there's something about the cinema photography there, cinematography in Days of Heaven where like I can just like it can the camera can be still or what it can be and I can really enjoy what's ha- the experience. But I didn't sense that with uh Killers of the Flower Moon. Um I thought the acting was fine. Um I actually also texted Mike uh last week i i just i I think i'm predisposed to not like leonardo dicaprio as an actor because i really feel like he's acting there's there's kind of a lack of genuine human experience in his performances like for me uh uh when there's a good performance it is, of course, it's acting, but then it kind of like transcends that, and you're kind of seeing like some genuine human experience being uh, expressed. And I feel like with DiCaprio, uh, I always just see something that's kind of manufactured. Um, it doesn't feel genuinely human. So there's me with that. I see. I mean, I can kind of see what you're saying. Like, I think some of us had critiques on DiCaprio's acting where he's just always like yelling and he's always angry in movies. I, I think all his performances have had some level, a degree of like yelling and, and it's just like this angry guy. Um, yeah. So, and I don't know if this would be in spoilers. So there was a scene in this movie that reminded me oh, of, yeah, yeah. Let's uh, we'll get to that in spoilers. Okay. Uh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Let's, let's not talk specifics, but anyways, uh, any other general thoughts uh, before we continue? Any thoughts on what Jesse just said about DiCaprio and, and slow movies and landscapes? Yeah, and I don't know if this is the right time to, to share this, but um, you know, I've seen a bunch of other Scorsese movies, and his crime movies kind of have a, like uh, Goodfellas, uh, uh, The Wolf, Wolf of Wall Street. Street, yeah, Casino. There's a playfulness to them that this movie didn't have. Right. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it would have, you know, I think he knew and we all know that it would have been, we probably would have been wrong to add playfulness to this story. Um, So maybe that's why that element wasn't there. I will say though, there were a handful of scenes in the third act that made me laugh from hey, one specific here. character. But we'll talk about that later. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I will say that, you know, I, I want to add one more thing. My my wife her, had heard me talk about the book and she knew I was interested in the movie. And but other than that, I don't think she knew that much about the story. I, I did turn to her after the movie had ended. I said, Well, how do you feel? And then she said just one word. She said, disturbed. And that was it. So I was like, wow, okay. Mm. Yeah. All right, uh, Jesse, I mean, I kind of want to circle back to your comment about a waste of human effort. <laughs> um, like, I mean, I wanted to ask you over text last night, but I'll ask you now. Like, you know, this film is bringing light to a, a tragic story for like these these people who have, you know, they've never had their story told in this way on the, such a huge platform, you know. now Now millions of people are going to know their story. Uh, where whereas before it was like buried in history so would you i think from that perspective i mean would you say that it still was a waste of human effort at least something this story got told you know on screen right if you look at it that way it's not like yeah it's a story that 
I didn't know about and a lot of other people didn't know about. So that's really good that more people are getting informed about uh, this. Um, I guess I meant it's a, <laughs> of course, what I wrote was to kind of, you know, get a reaction from you. So it's a little bit kind of like, exactly <laughs> like clickbaity, but um, I mean, there's just so much talent involved with making this movie um, and other resources. I just think it could have been a better movie. Gotcha. I see. Well, uh, your clickbait word worked because uh, you're here right now on this podcast, <laughs> defending your position. All right, let's uh, let's move on to spoilers starting now. No, no, you're still holding on. Let go. This film is essentially Goodfellas and Wolf of Wall Street. Paul, I think you kind of mentioned it's like a spiritual successor to Goodfellas. And I'm going to add Wolf of Wall Street to that as well. Like you have just this descent into the world of the film, whether it's gangsters or it's Wall Street, or in this case, it's the world of uh, the Osage people, Osage Nation. And then you have these immoral main characters who become so immersed in this world and then eventually get caught. And then they have to become informants or testify for the FBI against the world that they knew. So it, you know, once once the FBI started getting involved in this film, because again, you know, I I didn't know anything about the story. I was like, okay, here we go. I I see what he's doing now. He's he's just kind of taking that format that he used in Goodfellas and Wall Street, and then he's applying it to Flower Moon. So I mean, essentially, this is a story about a native, uh, the Osage Native American tribe. They they were forcefully moved to an area of Oklahoma that was designated as a reservation, seemingly nothing very plain land nothing special about it but then the, the osage people soon found out they they had moved the land that they moved they were moved to was rich with oil and it made their tribe the risk richest in the land this is like the equivalent of 400 million dollars uh the, the uh, total value of of the oil so they became rich really fast and white americans basically moved into the area seemingly to serve the osage people they were working in barbershops they were drivers and so forth and they began to intermarry with them uh, but soon the osage people were being murdered and the white people, americans who were married who married into the families were basically inheriting the wealth and we find out that there was this whole scheme to try to eliminate them so that they can uh, get the money so i, I want to start off the discussion in spoilers uh what was your biggest highlight from this film or i guess in jesse's case what was your biggest low light uh, the, the one thing that stood out to you guys the most. The biggest highlight for me was walking out of the movie theater. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, did you sleep well last night after talking to Jesse? I gotta ask you that. Well, it actually took me a long time to fall asleep because uh, I was thinking about it. I was like, I want to know why Jesse didn't like it. And then also, <laughs> oh man, but also I drank actually a lot of Pepsi during the movie and I was shocked. <laughs> I, I didn't need to go to the bathroom, which I thought I, I, I would have, uh, I would have had to at some point. Is that what Edward serves? Pepsi? They're, they're a Pepsi uh, chain, huh? Yeah. And oh, uh, wow. I used my, I used my birthday ticket to get a, a free large popcorn. And it was a large Pepsi. So it wasn't like a small one. So oh my gosh, to, dude. I well, if it, makes you, if it makes you feel better, I use my birthday uh, coupon to get a large Coke. With, like, oh, a nice. Large popcorn. Anywho. I can't believe you guys would do that during a three and a half hour movie. Like I would do that for like a one and a half hour movie. 
you want to have a good time, man. um i i guess i mean just speaking about like the the opening i I really appreciated the subtext um of just how like even in in the opening sequence they or they they have like that slideshow right and it talks about like the osh people and i think it, it says something about how the osh people inhabited like the least desirable land in oklahoma so it's already implied that like this is not their first bout of persecution or oppression right like the the uh, american people have already relegated them to this land that nobody wants and it's just within a miraculous stroke of luck that they managed to find that it's incredibly profitable and then that's when it's like okay this is the second wave of us oppressing you guys and it's just you know it's very tragic and i think that the um the film uses a lot of its you know three and a half hour runtime to exemplify that um and i think it's uh yeah just like the more and more that it carried on i was just like man this is such a heartbreaking story to tell yeah it's uh it's i think the beginning of the movie was really like you said paul really really good at sort of setting up everything for the rest of the story uh to to come very very quickly actually i was actually surprised at how how they did it right uh but uh, yeah, you 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 quickly kind of learn how the system is sort of gamed against them, especially with this 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 notion of how head rights can be passed to non Osage uh, folks, right? So it makes them sort of, and plus they're not even even though Osage are rich, they're not able to fully control their finances, which which is sort of the the other part uh, of the story um, that you see at play, and. Uh, and you know it's it's very interesting that you know we've, we've been sort of treated to a montage of violence that Scorsese is usually really good at so early in the film as well to sort of give you that sense that you know yes you showed them as you know very wealthy people in the beginning but you you quickly know there's something you know afoot very you know and uh, yeah I really really enjoyed the setup I thought it was really 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 well done. Yeah, for me, I just I love learning about the history of what happened to these people. And all throughout the film, I was just appreciating the fact that finally the story gets to be told on such a huge canvas and millions of people can finally know what happened uh, in this part of American history. And I just appreciated I I did some research, uh, you know, after watching the film, I was like listening to interviews with them, but they took a, a, a very high degree of a care as they approach the story involving the Osage people uh, present day, not just in front of the camera as actors, but also behind as well. The Osage language department uh, worked with a production team for the film. They were involved with the script. They were involved with costuming and set designs. And I think it's especially important when you're trying to tell someone else's story, right? You have all these white actors and directors who uh, filmmakers who you know, especially for people that had suffered many tragedies over the course of their history, I think it's important that they are involved in the telling of this. And I think it just highlights the importance and power of cinema, right? To be able to dramatize real life stories and bring them to the widest audience possible. So I was just appreciative all throughout that this film finally exists. So Mike, add, yeah, Mike, to add to what you just said right there, when this, when this, the book itself is sort of split into two parts. One is the, the beginning. The first half is really about the 
Osage murders. And the second half is sort of about the beginnings of the FBI and how they got involved in all of this. I think when they were initially making this movie, it was going to be told more from the FBI's point of view. And Leonardo DiCaprio was actually, I, I think he was supposed to be Tom White. And then right. I think yeah, what happened, I heard that too. yeah, I think what happened was Scorsese, you know, over time realized, well, how are we going to make this, 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 this uh, story more emotionally powerful? And that's when they decided to sort of center more on, you know, Molly and Ernst Burkhardt and also as well as what the, the Osage people, you know, went through. So, so honestly, um, big credit to Scorsese for sort of taking a step back. Sometimes this is why it's good for projects to sit there for a while. Like, in, I think in the case of this one, five, eight years, something like that, maybe 10. And and uh, sort of like, oh, say, okay, wait, hold on. We need to take a step back. We we got to, I think it's an act of wisdom to say, there, there are things I don't know. So I'm going to go to people who do know something about it. And, uh, and I, I think you get a better product out of it, right? I don't want to call a movie a product. I'm sure Scorsese would hate for me to say that. Marvel movies Content. are products. I know, but 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 yeah. <laughs> so I I I'm you know a lot of credit to everybody for 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 doing that. Seriously. And I think I think Ernest Burkhardt is a much more interesting character to play for DiCaprio than Tom White. Right. I, I, yeah, I, I think he recognized that. that too very early. Like, wait, <laughs> I, I'm probably going to get a better performance if I'm I'm Ernest Burkhardt uh, rather than Tom White. All right. So I I had heard that initially when they were writing the the uh, the movie, kind of like the book, it was written as a whodunit mystery. I'm wondering, do you get, do you guys think that would have been more effective for the film uh, in telling this story, or do you think do you like the way that it was? Because when I heard that it was a whodunit mystery, I'm like, oh, that would have been interesting as well. And I'm not sure which one I would have liked more because uh, this one is great because you get a beat by beat run through of the historical events in chronological order. But then for a whodunit mystery, it's like. I think that could be more engaging for the audience, you know, audiences who might find just a, a normal uh, historical epic uh, kind of kind of boring, I guess, with, for the lack of a better term. I think, so, so, sorry, go ahead, Paul. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, so I think Scorsese said in his interview at Cannes, he said, like, it's not a whodunit, it's a who didn't do it. <laughs> so it, it's kind of right. like how he, because like, right from the get-go, like in the conversation that, uh Ernest Burkhardt has with his uncle uh King right they they already kind of have like a sinister conversation and it's it's very subtle like because you know because De Niro is so charismatic and because Ernest seems kind of like a lovable oaf type of character you don't really feel the gravity of like what they're really talking about uh underneath un until it becomes more actualized throughout the film so I think if it was, if the if the central conceit of the film was framed under the structure of a whodunit, I think it would take away from like the tragedy of the Osage people, and it would kind of trivialize it in a sense because it treats them more as like oh like who's the next victim you know to to you know advance right. the plot or something like that. Yeah, so I think in in this sense, like it, it is less of a whodunit because we kind of know from the very beginning like the guilty party. And it's more of a just like how how did this happen, and the tragedy like being kind of told through the experience of Molly's family. I think 
makes for a more impactful and memorable story because you know we 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 have lots of whodunits um and uh i i just feel like yeah it, it probably wouldn't be as tasteful to have done it like that for the the story here yeah i i, I would agree with paul there i mean there are there are certain things that i do miss from the book and i'll get to that when we get to the end of this but uh, in general yeah i think you know seeing the movie as a slow moving tragedy with sort of these pops of violence is is as much more sort of the raw effect on 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 the uh, viewer uh, this way um, yeah, yeah sorry go ahead Tessie. oh uh, do you want to finish your thought oh i'm i'm good yeah okay um i'm not too familiar with the who done it genre but I think there's a trope where they gather a bunch of the main characters together and try to figure things out. And so while watching this movie, I had a moment like that totally didn't cross my mind that this is a whodunit or isn't a whodunit movie. But then when the Jesse Plemons character and some other people were out in this like empty field with all their cars trying to f figure things out, I thought, oh, is this, this is like a whodunit uh, movie or I don't know. Did you guys think that when that scene happened? I definitely do think that it shifts a little bit with, upon the arrival of Jesse Plemons' character. And I mean, he arrives like pretty late. Uh, I think maybe there's like, I don't know, an hour and a half left or something. But uh, yeah, I mean, it definitely, I think definitely the 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 tone kind of shifts a little bit. Um, but I'm glad that they didn't delve too, too hard into that. I mean, I feel like it's pretty straightforward. He just goes around asking questions and then most of the people are pretty closed off to him and he's like, all right, well, I just got to figure this out. Like it, the, the movie never really becomes about him. And I, I think that's what makes it so good. Right. It never like, it, it never kind of implies like, Oh, now the, now the hero in shining armor has, has arrived to save the day. I feel like the movie never kind of makes that its point. I, I want to go back to sort of the introduction of, of, uh, William, uh, Hell, who is, uh, and Ernst Burkhardt's uncle, who who sort of, you know, is the I think de facto sheriff, right, or or sheriff in honor, and so he is the guy everybody knows and trusts, including the the um, the Osage Native Americans. And uh, I I sure love the intro of that character during this first part of the movie because it's so charming, and you think, oh, he's such a great guy, and when he's really sort of almost like a devil incarnate type of character and you know because you know we are the weak and foolish podcast it was sort of hard for me not to see um uh you know leonardo dicaprio and robert de niro as sort of like a dopier midwestern version of like anakin skywalker <laughs> yes <laughs> i remember yes. just like pulling him you know between his light and dark sides and you know, ironically, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio was in the running to be Anakin a long time ago, but it was hard for me not to think of that. That's what happens when you watch so much Star Wars movies. Everything's a reference or a comparison. You know, Albert, I was wondering how how are we going to tie this episode back to Star Wars? And I'm so glad you you dropped it. Thank you so we much. Just got it. We just got it. I was just going to get I was just going to let that boat sail, but uh, ship sail. But, you know, you did it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, that beginning conversation, he already started planting seeds into DiCaprio's mind or, or Ernest's mind about, hey, what kind of woman do you like red women? You know, that was like a that's like a big comment. And then he had to kind of pause and think about it. Like, oh, yeah, red, blue, white. Oh, I don't care. <laughs> so uh, it was already like planting the seeds of like, 
hey, he's trying to influence this guy right from the get go to to get with one of these uh, one of these families. And I think that just the way that De Niro talks about the Osage people, like from the outset, I, I don't I didn't get the impression that I was like, oh, this guy's like straight up evil. Right. He because he has the charisma to be like, you know, clearly these people love him and trust him for a reason. Uh, and I think when he was talking about it, it, it wasn't until, you know, more and more of the movie went on where I was like, oh, I just kind of went back to that first conversation. And I was like how he talks about how the Osage people are are a loving, like one of the, you know, greatest people on the planet. Like they're a lovely tribe of people. And it, it made me kind of retroactively think like, oh, he he's talking about them more like they are a product than they are a people. Uh, and I think that whole like business mind, uh, business mindset really kind of seeps in like the more, you know, about his character. But yeah, I mean, I definitely was fooled at first where, you know, I, I knew something was was up, you know, and when they're talking about like, how how do we obtain the head rights? I didn't immediately gravitate towards like, oh, he's he's already plotting about like, how to kill these people. Right. Um, so I, I think that's, you know, credit to the movie and, and the pacing where these things gradually come to light. I was uh, I was pretty surprised that Jesse Plemons was in this movie. Uh, you guys were talking about like how much you love this performance. When he shows up, I was like genuinely shocked. And then they were, and he's not the only one who I was shocked by. John Lithgow shows up as well, delivers like three lines, and then leaves. And uh, and then we get Brendan Fraser too, Oscar Oscar winning Brendan Fraser. Uh, so uh, I think those are some pretty big surprises for me. Um, just, uh, just really random. Did you, were you guys as surprises from their cameos? Uh, I mean, I remember hearing about them being in the movie, but I forgot about it until I actually saw them again. I was like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I remember there was something about that, but I, I think maybe what shocked me was how small their parts are, but you know, if, you know, it's Scorsese. It's like a Chris Nolan. People will, people will work with him for a short time just to get that experience. Right. So. Yeah. Another similarity to Oppenheimer. I mean, since we're already in spoiler territory, I mean, the biggest appearance shock appearance for me was Scorsese himself at the end. Yeah, I was that's like, right. What the oh, frick? That was great. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. actually uh, hear his voice a few times. I think two more times before you see him at the end. Oh, really? really? If you all picked up on that. No, I didn't. Yeah. When, when does he talk? Uh, I forget. There's, there's kind of some kind of voiceover where it's not, it's like someone off screen, but in the world of the movie, kind of giving oh. something to make maybe medicine or. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, I, I didn't. It's such I a distinctive voice. That. Um. So, Paul and uh, Albert, what did you guys like about Martin Scorsese showing up at the very end? Oh, we're 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 already at there, huh? Uh, at that point. Well, what are, I mean, we could we could just jump around, you know. Sure, uh, sure. Uh, since we mentioned him, might as well talk it, about it. It made the gravity of the story. I mean, you felt the gravity of the story a little more for him to have. I mean, that he sort of him coming out at the end sort of indicated he he was taking ownership of the story, right? And, and how much this this story meant for him to to sort of come out and deliver this obituary and therefore sort of like 
making the scene more memorable in default and also sort of cementing in people's memory, you know, who who Molly really was. I, I, you know, that that's sort of what I took out of it. Um, I did have different expectations for the ending, but I, I kind of want to hear what, what, what you all thought first before I go into that. Yeah, so the ending was actually the part of the film that I enjoyed the least because when it gets into the whole radio show ending, it's it, it almost to me it almost felt like Scorsese was like, oh, like he looked at the, his watch and he was like, oh crap, this thing's this thing's running at three and a half hours. Like I gotta figure out how to end this really quick, you know. And it, it just didn't feel as satisfying of a closure to like molly's story because i think you know at the heart of this story is the osh people and more specifically molly and so the fact that they kind of just you know play off the whole like and then uh they rotted in jail and then molly remarried and then she died and then the end right i just felt like it was it was kind of a it was kind of a difficult like way to process the whole send-off uh especially because the last scene that we see with molly is in that really tense you know, scene where she goes to visit Ernest and then they have like one last heart to heart. And then she asks him, like, did you poison me? And that's the one lie that he chooses to like not tell her. Right. And then he and then she she walks away. Right. And so I think that was such a beautiful and like powerful scene. But then, you know, to bookend that with like and then, you know, this and this happened. It was just kind of hard for me to stomach. Uh, I mean, I kind of get why he did it, because if you were to provide the closure of like each of those characters, then this would literally be like a four hour movie. It'd be like, you know, return of the King status where it'd just be, you know, ending after ending. But yeah, that, I don't know. That's, that's where it's complicated. Right. I mean, I don't know. What do you guys think? I, I wonder if he, he, he put that in there because that may have been the last time most Americans had heard about, you know, the story. I, I want to go back and sort of look into it. Cause I feel like that has to be a real radio play. Right. Um, but um, the the one thing I did want to add was, and I, I think it really cemented to me how Scorsese wanted to turn the story about the murders into a more intimate story. Because, you know, in the book, I think sort of one of the, the big takeaways from it was, and it's kind of more of a twist, was that this, <laughs> this was a lot bigger than it actually was. It was, you know, the, the murders weren't just, you know, a couple of dozen people. It may have gone to the hundreds, but now there's no way to. To prove it, it's just kind of, you know, the author walked into, you know, a burial site and just noticed that there are all these people who were young and just died around the same time, right? And that can't just be coincidental, right? And and then um, and sort of the the long lasting generational impact of of poverty and those states, you know, uh, community not being able to sort of recover from that even to this day right despite how long it happened but um i, I kind of felt like oh i would have liked to see some nod to the scale of how bad this actually was it was like a slow moving tulsa um is how i would describe it but uh yeah i would have liked to at least see a nod to that that well this wasn't just you know it wasn't just like an intimate affair it was it was big it was massive uh, so maybe that's the one thing i kind of wish they they did do but yeah, that's how I feel about it. Yeah, Albert. Yeah, I think, I think you're, oh, yeah, I think it's cool to have a uh, Albert's opinion or just someone's opinion who's read the book too, um, and like 
but talking about the ending, uh, I guess I have two points. One is, yeah, it's kind of interesting to think about what this movie would have been without that radio show ending and how Scorsese might have wrapped it up. Like it could have been one of those ones where they show the real pictures of the people and just say like, oh, so-and-so died here. So-and-so divorced this person. That's one way that could have, uh, where you could have ended the movie kind of quickly. Um, and then, oh, yeah, or, or you could have like shot like a, a fictional sequence of like what happened to them. And then there's like a freeze frame and then the text appears on the screen, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Or uh, Leonardo DiCaprio would break the fourth wall and talk to the the camera and, and tell what happened to all those people. That would have been very Scorsese-ish. That would have been interesting if the actors, <laughs> if they kind of broke out their roles and did that, I think. That would be really fascinating. And then my second point, I this is not a fully formed thought yet, so I might not be able to express it well, but I wonder if that radio show shows how white Americans were still exploiting um, Native Americans for profit. Um, but then that also could mean that this film is doing the in the same vein. It's exploiting this tragedy for profit. I mean, like going back to Paul's point, I think the difference though is that they actually involved, you know, members of the community and, or uh, to, and Mike's point too. Uh, in it. So I, I do feel like it's a little different. Uh, and clearly, I don't, you know, I know at $200 million, I don't know if this movie's ever going to really make money. <laughs> I kind of feel like Apple just felt like, look, we, we already want the best picture. Let's 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 go for a second one, you know. And now in that way, yes, that is a bit of an exploitation too, right? I can see your 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 point and all. Yeah, I mean I'm not saying I believe that, but I think uh, you know some there could someone could argue that. Yeah, no, I I no I I can see that for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think the book was optioned for like five million dollars, which was like a lot, you know, it's just like ridiculous. I think I don't think that happens to many books. So, so we are recording this the Monday after the opening weekend of Killers of Flower Moon, and the numbers are in: twenty-three million domestic, forty-four million global, and like you said, Albert, budget was two hundred million before print and advertising, which essentially is essentially the marketing of the film. So, you yeah, it sounds Taylor like it's Swift, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No. I mean, this just sounds like a, a really big flop. It's, I, I think when I saw the numbers, I was pretty discouraged. Like it, it didn't produce the Oppenheimer numbers, which was, you know, Oppenheimer was kind of similar. It was both like a, a very talky three hour long drama, but that one had Christopher Knowles' name on it, I guess. Uh, but I guess it wasn't unexpected that this movie wouldn't, you know, at least break even. Because I mean, this is a different movie. It could have gone to streaming, right? It could have, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. And here's a here's a quote from Deadline, which uh, suggests a, a different perspective on whether or not this is a flop or if it's a success. And they see it as a form of advertising for Apple to get people to come into their ecosystem. And you know, they don't see it as pure profit and loss. It's more of a marketing expense for them. So, whatever they're taking as a loss, they consider that a marketing loss uh, or marketing exp expense, I should say, sorry. And, uh, you know, Amazon Prime released a uh, film uh, in theaters earlier 
uh, I think either this year or late last year, uh, it's called Air with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, right? They spent $125 million on that movie. They only made $90 million worldwide. But I think the fact that it even made money back uh, is a plus, right? Because if they just send it straight to streaming, they don't get they don't make anything, you know, off of that. So I think if when you put something in theaters, at least it is a it generates cultural uh, interest, right, and relevancy. Then when you put it on your streaming platform, then it's like oh, you have a premium product now that was something that was in theaters, something something that garnered awards and now we have something that's you know bright and shiny on our service so i, I thought that was it i haven't i've never heard of that perspective uh before in terms of box office but i guess you know here we are with with these uh tech companies coming into entertainment yeah that makes sense and it reminds me of the world of cars where manufacturers will make a halo car like a car that they're going to lose money on because they're not going to sell many and it's expensive to make but it increases the prestige of the brand or some other aspect of the brand i i also feel like scorsese is like not in the business of making money anymore like i i don't think that's why he makes his movies you know because i think a lot of young aspiring directors are like okay well i need to make this commercial hit so that i can make my passion projects or whatever right but you know scorsese's been making his passion projects for a while now i mean i think the most recent one i can think of is like silence, right? He he really wanted to do that. And I, I don't know if that made a profit or not, but I'm assuming it probably didn't make too much money. Uh, but yeah, so I think like in that sense, I, I, I can totally see like someone making that argument of what you're saying though, Jesse, like uh like pointing to you know the expectation of of the OSH people. But um yeah, I mean I, I think the intention at least behind this movie, I think it was good. Um so it was so the... oh I'm sorry. Uh, oh, sorry. Was, just, uh, just just a quick note on yeah. silence. Uh, budget was forty to fifty million, and box office was twenty three point eight. Oh, gotcha. That's what the, that's what Taiwan's tax cuts. I'm guessing for him to shoot there, right? It's yeah. gotta be. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. I was gonna say though, you know, I I I did hear that some people were hearing, you know, the Swifties. It, you know, next door while they're trying to watch, and you know, there's a lot of silence and killer. So, you, I had the same experience, it wasn't too bad, but you could hear them. <laughs> so, it was kind of like, oh, this movie's you kind of know which movie's the dominant cultural force right now. You know, I'm not Swifty, but kudos, kudos to Taylor Swift for yeah, a keen business mind getting that movie out. So our discussion has kind of veered towards the end of the film, but um, I kind of want to bring it back to, you know, discussing things that happen, events that happen, or you know, performances uh, within the film. Um, I, I guess I'll start by just I want to highlight DiCaprio again, and I want to talk about just how ugly this guy was in this movie. Um, just two, yeah. And, and, and some of the highlights for me, I I laughed out loud. Okay, so there are two different scenes. Uh, one where Ernest is driving Molly in the car, and one where they're having dinner in her house. It's kind of like their first date, and Molly would say something in the Osage language, and Ernest responds both times. He's like, "I don't know what you just said, but must have been Indian for handsome devil, <laughs> or pretty, must have been good, Indian for, or if must have been Indian for coyote." <laughs> I, I don't know. I was like the only person in the theater, like busting out laughing. No, yeah, that was great. And uh, I, laughed. I laughed. Yeah, we laughed. Yeah, I, okay, I, I totally agree that he's uh, 
it, it's it's great. It's refreshing to see him so ugly because he really is so ugly in this movie. Um, and uh, it's you know I, I talk about uh, on this podcast a lot like how much I love Tom Cruise the actor, and uh, this is like this kind of performance from Leo is something that I wish Tom Cruise would do more. You know, outside of Mission Impossible, just play like these people that Topic aren't. Thunder. Right, right. And, and, but that was like, what, 2008, right? So that was like the last time he did that. And it's, so, it's just like, it, it would be refreshing to see him play someone who's like, yeah, not the protagonist, right? Just someone who's like, just like a despicable guy. And I think Leo really nails that uh, in, in this uh, performance. So yeah, and, and just like seeing his gradual descent from being kind of like an innocent guy, right? Because it, they, des- they described just from the get-go that he, he was a cook in world war one right so he he didn't really see a lot of action he really he didn't have to get his hands dirty uh and then this is kind of like his version of of getting his hands dirty through through the ex- exploitation of those age people yeah that's right i didn't think about it that way yeah yeah it's really interesting he's almost sort of compartmentalized his love for his wife with sort of these things is doing behind her back and and really the only middle ground to all of that is that you know the quote insulin unquote that he he gives molly because you, you kind of feel like does he know or doesn't he know and you kind of feel like the truth is actually strangely in the middle like i could see him sort of convincing himself of 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 it from you know uh, he could convince himself that he is or not you know what it really is as administering to her and yeah. i actually found that part to be the most interesting part of his performance yeah, did you guys think that, you know, with the confrontation that they have in the end, did did you get a sense that after all that's been said, like he genuinely loved Molly? Or do you think even from the very beginning he was like, This is this is my way in? I I really felt like there was a connection and a love there between these two characters. Um uh, I, I felt like the chemistry between the actors and in the the I guess the romantic meet cute type scenes, I think that was genuine. Like I think he genuinely loved her, and that's what made makes this character so complex. Like that he could love someone, but also backstab her and just destroy her whole world. Um, I think maybe that's why DiCaprio was attracted to this character. Is just like such a despicable, strange uh, person, you know, who who could do such a thing. Truly, truly, Midwest Anakin. <laughs> so. Midwest uh, Anakin. Midwest Anakin. Oh, so Anakin man. never tried to kill Padme, you know. Like but he, he kind of did. <laughs> he kind of did. He did choke her. So. Yeah. yeah, he's trying to. Yeah, yeah. Okay. He killed her with heartbreak, Mike. That's what happened. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Paul. I'm thinking about your question, and. Yeah, I appreciate how, whether through the acting or the script or the directing, I think it's still kind of an open-ended question. Although I think most people probably lean towards that he did, at least to some degree, genuinely love Molly. Um, It's almost like the spinning top at the end of Inception. Like, uh, But anyway, uh, and so the reason why I say that is, uh, let's see. Like when uh, one of his kids died and he was in prison, like he didn't need to react the way he did, you know, 
Like he was really grieving. He was wailing. I think um, that's pretty genuine. Um, another interesting scene was when the FBI, the it wasn't called the FBI back then. It was called the BOI, I think, Bureau of Investigation. Jesse Plemons' character was like, oh, you're a good man, right? Or do you think you're a good man? And he didn't actually just say, oh, yeah, I am. Like he hadn't compartmentalized what he did to that degree. And then oh, no, another related point is, for me, it's not, because I think in a lot of crime movies or gangster movies, the that person really can do so many things to hurt people, to kill people, but yet genuinely love and care for his family. So I don't think it's anything, that's not new territory to see in a film. Yeah, I, I think the tragedy of his character is he ultimately does do the right thing, but it, it's just, you know, his sins have just, if it, it's piled up to that point where he can't really come back from it, even if he's, he is trying to, you know, do the right thing. Yeah. Of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's what makes that final confrontation between him and Molly so impactful because he has the chance to fully absolve himself of all his sins and then he chooses to hang on to that one lie. And that's when, you know, when she gets up and leaves, I'm kind of just like, yeah, Molly. But at the same time, I was like, oh, man, it's really sad. <laughs> so, yeah. Can you all remind me of that very last exchange they had? What did they say? Um, yeah, so I mean, it's essentially she just comes in like after, uh, like he testifies, I think, uh, and then they just he she just talks about how, um, or she talks about like, do do you feel like you've done the right thing? And then he he kind of talks about how he he testified because of his love for his family, his love for Molly, and then uh, you can tell like based on. The way that she's looking at it is like okay but there's one thing that there's one lie that you haven't told me yet because she, she kind of i think she says something along the lines of like so is the truth's out for everything right and then uh he's like yeah you know like i i, I couldn't live with myself and then and then she you know lays it on him did you poison me like the the thing in the insulin did, were you were you putting something else in that insulin and he was like no 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 yeah and then so after he, you know, commits to that lie, she just she just gets up and leaves. So I still have a hard time figuring figure like I, I guess it's up to everyone, right? Like how he was really feeling, but I still have a hard time figuring out whether he had sort of squared that off with himself, you know, whether he knew he was what he was doing or not. Yeah, I think now that you've mentioned that, I think the last line was because I like how it's kind of like not so direct, a little bit indirect, how she was trying to get him to uh, really say the truth. I think it was something like, what were you giving me all that time? Like what were in those shots? And then he said, insulin, right? And then she walks away. Mm -hmm. Is that, that how it played out? I think so, yeah. Um, yeah I, think, I think she like gives him a second, she's like, gives him a second chance to like try to yep. answer the question again. And then he kind of doubles down. He's like, it was insulin. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, that because you brought it up earlier, Jesse, about how their youngest child, Anna, you know, passes away. I I think to me, that was like the most devastating cut of the movie where it like cuts to her in the bed. And I I'm trying to think like what was the scene or shot right before that? I don't know if you guys can remember, but I remember it was also like a pretty tragic scene. And then it cuts to like 
there's their daughter dying and i was like oh my gosh this is like so brutal dude yeah i can't remember either but i do remember the shot of her laying in bed and she had passed away and then you see some of her toys and stuffed animals like laying next to her and uh, it was devastating to look at yeah uh, the, the, just the, oh, sorry, yeah, sorry go no no go ahead no i was gonna say that the deaths in this movie like you know they're just brutal like but in, they sort of punctuate you know at every 10 20 minutes or something that just happens you're like wow dang that's messed up oh yeah um another actor who shows up in this film who i was surprised by was uh david from the last of us the, oh uh, yeah the pedophile pastor from The Last of Us. <laughs> Everyone's favorite Christian, dude. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was surprised to see him in this movie. And uh, yeah, he, another great performance from this uh, very snake-looking guy. Did but you know that snake. it was him the moment you saw him? Because he's The moment you saw him, I'm like, oh, hey, it's it's him. Oh, uh, okay, okay. I actually got him confused. Uh, when I first saw him, I was like, isn't that the guy who plays uh, Bruce Wayne's dad in Batman Begins? But then, uh, yeah, I, I looked it up afterwards. I was like, oh, shoot, it's, it's it's our favorite Christian. I didn't make that connection until you just said it, by the way. So. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Kind of, kind of hard to... I, I thought it was like, oh, obviously, it's it's the guy from Last of Us. There was another actor I recognized. And I can't remember his name right now. He's from No Country for Old Men. I can't think it. Oh, I, I, I do want to say on the subject of like performances that we appreciated. Um, so the, the character that made me laugh a, a lot in the third act was the guy who plays um, Blackie Thompson, Tommy Schultz. So I think he's like a mixed and uh, like a Native American actor, too. But he's the guy that they like pin all the like petty crimes on or, or like he, he has to like do time on behalf of the, the family. Right. Uh, I just thought it was so funny when the the boi or fbi goes to him and then he like rats everyone out and then and then they're they're like so uh did like did everything work out the way that you had planned he's like of course not that's why i'm talking to you guys yeah you know uh <laughs> I, I just thought like his character was so funny uh and yeah i mean he he really got screwed up over by uh by the family so it, it was nice to see him get some sort of redemption yeah this movie's really good at sort of like if you have nothing else to lose you know <laughs> Just casually take everyone out, out with you. Right. Uh, the 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 same was with the the older gentleman with the thick southern accent. I forget what his name was in the film, but uh, he also at the end he just kind of was like, "All right, you guys, like, I'm just gonna rat on all you guys." Uh, another highlight for me is, uh, I mean, it, it has to do with the trial, but when. Brendan Fraser interrupts the trial when it first starts, and then they take DiCaprio into the room, and you see just a group of like older white men, right? And then um, I, I just thought that image was so striking, and you're and they introduce some of the notable members of that, and they're all like oil people, and so you know it's clear there's so many higher up interests uh, in this land and in exploiting these people. So uh, it, it, I went back and I, and I watched the teaser for this film. Uh, and I, I love how they use that line from DiCaprio that he says earlier when he was like reading the book. Like, can you find the wolves in this picture? 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I was like, wow, that's cool. Yeah, so I kind of wish they had juxtaposed that in the film, but you know, still, still a very striking and, and effective image at, at you know what was happening. Yeah, yeah, Mike, can you just speak in your Midwest accent for the rest of this episode? <laughs> uh, I'm a coyote. <laughs> it was cool. Uh, to... Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. It's just a small aside. It, it was cool to see Robert Dino. Um, uh, attempt or, or pull off this accent because i don't think i've seen him uh act in this accent in another film yeah he's usually like a new yorker right like streets of new york kind of thing but then yeah he's a total southerner in this mm-hmm. yeah uh, i was just gonna say like you know i i think we might have talked about this on our oppenheimer podcast episode but uh i think the consensus with the movie as much as people love it they do think that the courtroom you know, act uh, is probably the weakest uh, part of uh, Oppenheimer. But for me, like with this film, I actually thought that the legal like courtroom scenes were actually like really interesting. Uh, I, I think it it definitely kept my attention more than it did in Oppenheimer. I think just the way that the proceedings are happening because because like Burkhart kind of backpedals on his test test of um, testifying and and just trying to you know figure out like what what's going to happen like at the end i, I genuinely was like dude is this guy can testify or what but i don't know did, did were you guys uh engaged during that scene as well i mean i i think um though this was sort of the trial of the century at the time kind of like you know how the oj trial was our trial of the century and we've we've had a few more since then right but th- at that time that was the trial of the century and I think it was sort of a circus too. It just kind of was sort of happening when print media was really sort of taking hold and people were really reading newspapers more and that sort of stuff. And so it really kind of blew up with that. And I think it what, what Scorsese did really well was portraying it as a circus, right? So uh, that that's sort of how I, I enjoyed the scene as I was like, oh, this is a this is a real circus. Yeah, that's an interesting point to ask about the courtroom scenes and especially comparing it to Oppenheimer. And I agree that it added some energy, like uh, like a new flavor to this movie. And maybe that's because the story was basically told chronologically. So when it happened, you're like, oh, you know, they, maybe the justice will happen. Um, and yeah, with Oppenheimer, imagine if it were edited in a straightforward fashion, maybe the courtroom scenes would have felt different. But that's just something Christopher Nolan can't do. So, right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think the more I think about it, it's like the the structure of this film. Like, as long as it is, it is pretty straightforward for the most part. So, I think up until that scene, it was, yeah, it was like you kind of knew like what you're gonna get the film. Jesse, I want to ask you, do you have any more negative thoughts to share with us? Because uh, you had teased <laughs> us earlier in the non-spoiler discussion, and I'm just kind of waiting for more negativity from you, oh. negative energy. Man. Uh, like, do you want to elaborate on, on on the things that you didn't like about the film? Hmm. No, I think, yeah, I think I just, yeah. Actually, I did want to. Okay, maybe I'll elaborate later. But at the moment, um, kind of in the in the queue of thoughts in my mind, closer to the front is uh, oh, two things. First, I actually was not surprised by Jesse Plemons' 
appearing on screen. I was like, oh, of course he's going to play this character. <laughs> I'm not sure why. Maybe I've seen him in some other movie where he played a similar, like very upright kind of by the books character. Maybe Fargo, the TV show? Oh, no, I haven't seen that. Anyway, oh, okay. I wasn't surprised at all uh, by him playing that character. But uh, one thing I did want to say about just like scenes for the movie that were interesting were um, before all the courtroom stuff, there was a, a scene with a bunch of tribal leaders. Um, and one of the leaders, the elders was giving a, a speech and it almost felt like a sermon or, um, and what also was like, it was, it wasn't just, uh, something he was saying to those people around him at that time. Like, I felt like some of the language he used could, could really like speak to people right now today. Oh yeah, that's fair. I, I think, um, I kind of agree. I, I mean, I think the, the scenes that they use for the tribal leaders is very much the same each time. Like whenever they're together, I mean, they're all together and they're all talking about how, you know, the, the white Americans have exploited them, stuff like that, you know, which is all true. And I think it's all like valid to have, but um, I think it, the, the film definitely would have benefited a bit more if like the tribal leaders had scenes where they're, you know, maybe talking to Molly's family or to Molly and just kind of like voicing their, you know, support for them or, or like comforting them because I mean, shoot, like her family goes through so much crap. Right. I mean, like the, her family members start getting picked off one by one. So I think it would have had a little bit more of an interesting, like dynamic if they were in those scenes. And um, what you just said reminds me of a quote I just happened upon uh, tonight. Well, actually just a few minutes ago while we are, while we are recording this and I don't know how I ended up on this Reddit post. Um, but someone said, um, I'd like this from the New Yorker review of the movie quote, although its moral ambition is to honor the tribulations of an indigenous people, it keeps getting pulled back into the orbit dash emotional, social, and eventually legal dash of white men. Molly is diabetic and Burkhart uh, gradually suspects that the insulin injections he is giving her may be doctored, yet the focus remains more on his clenched and frowning perplexity than on her wasting away. So, yeah, that could be a, someone's criticism of this movie that it's about a big part of the movie is supposed to be about the Osage people, but the gravity of the movie is still around these uh, white Americans. Yeah, I can see that. Like even Molly herself is kind of serving the complexity of the white characters. Yeah, I can see that too. I, I'm, I'm, it's hard to, I don't know because it, maybe that's the point is that these these groups are so intertwined that you know you can't help but feel like there's there's a lot of moral gray areas right because there, there are times when it's like you know i wanted to like i already knew the story but i wanted to like molly what are you doing <laughs> why are you still in this you know but um yeah I mean, to a point, I kind of agree with that. And to a point, I also kind of disagree. I thought they did a very good job of 
Molly's sort of uh, wasting away, you know, but yeah, I'm, I'm still thinking through what you just said. So that's an interesting point. I, I mean, one of the one of the moments in the film that like made me really like internally like jump up for joy and cheer is when she fully recovers right from from the wasting away and seeing her in good health uh as she you know sees her husband again i was like oh man i was because i i really you know when she was wasting away i was like oh man is she like not gonna make it through like the third act of the film because i thought you know the, the the movie skeptic in me was like i mean of course she's gonna live because you know why else would they tell this story right if if all of them just like died i guess like there has to be some hook to it but you know part of me still felt that fear that doubt i was like oh she might not make it and i think that it was uh yeah it was just really impactful like seeing her recover um and i think another you know going off of that like i think some people will probably criticize how you know the aspect of the white savior right especially in the form of jesse's character um tom white you know oh it's another white savior coming to you know to to bring the osage people back out from the you know brink of extinction or whatever but i i really don't feel like the movie frames it in that way i think you know his you know jesse Plemons. he he doesn't have a lot of lines but i think he makes the most of it because he just comes across as like a very inherently good person and also like he he kind of just like recedes in the background, right? He he like gives his two cents and then he he lets the the rest of the characters kind of like take over, I think. Uh and I mean his his character as well just kind of does that where he's like, you know, he's always thinking, he's always like analyzing what people are saying and he's letting them speak and then he's listening. So I, I just really appreciated that about his character. Um, and he kind of like talked when he needed to. Um, and I just felt like that was a really good uh refreshing like you know, character to appear throughout the film when we're so accustomed to seeing all these like other white Americans like being terrible people. But I don't think the movie like glorifies him. He kind of just steps in, does his job, and then that's it. And then it kind of just goes, it does kind of go back to, to Molly and, and Ernest's story. But yeah, I don't know. No, I mean, I was going to say, you, you kind of can't take them out. You could like sort of maybe minimize, you know, maybe one part and sort of put the spotlight more on another, which is kind of what they did. But you can't, you sort of can't take out the, the character Tom. I mean, he really was. I mean, David Grant uh, really researched him. I mean, he really, he was, Tom White was sort of a very rare person, even of that time. He really was that sort of, you know, moral person. If, any, if anything, it was, you could say, well, yeah, J. Edgar Hoover being who he was, was the guy who was sort of fame-seeking, and that's why he got the Bureau of Investigations involved in this, you know, you could say this was like his first step into, you know, gaining more power. Uh, but, um, you, you know, just even the idea that the FBI was sort of created because of this is is also sort of a story onto its own. I don't know if you could completely divorce that out of this story. You know, obviously the weight, the moral weight of the story should be on the, the murders of, of the Osage people. But you, yeah. I, you know, you're also talking about institution that would grow to make, you know, very very impactful decisions for better or worse in the lives of Americans for many 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 decades afterwards. You know, so the latter half of the century. Yeah, I really do feel like this. The character of of Tom White is. I feel like it, it was to service the redemption arc of uh of Molly, uh, just like 
seeing her, you know, her tragedies finally kind of have some, you know, some redemption in the end and also to service uh, Ernest's almost redemption, almost completely redemption until, you know, he kind of backs out the, at the last minute. But, uh, yeah no i i agree uh i also say you know we, we we you know we talked about you know people could see this as an exploitation of 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 you know uh, you know native people's story i mean i'm pretty sure there are people who are seeing this movie as sort of like oh you know our our federal powers better than state powers right and uh, you, you know that's always been sort of the forever debate in america but over here, you kind of see how maybe having a federal power is is the better course, especially if you consider how much power that William Hell is shown, and he knows everybody in the state up and down half of America. So it may have taken something like that to happen to sort of bring him down, and even his punishment didn't fit the crime. So yeah it's it's good that you're here to kind of give us that historical context because uh, now we have a I, I feel like I have a more macro uh, understanding of like these events, how it's tied to the FBI. Um, I was also thinking as you guys were talking, how a great would it have been if J. Edgar Hoover actually shows up in this film and it's played by Leonardo DiCaprio from <laughs> the two thousand eleven Clint Eastwood film J. Edgar <laughs> that that would be the ultimate cameo. That was an interesting decision not to show him. I thought it was pretty interesting. But that that is what I thought of immediately when they mentioned his name. I was like, "Oh, Leo's going to play two roles." <laughs> yeah, and he's like, it's like a de-aged version of himself. Yeah, that's why it's a two hundred million dollar budget. Um. Oh man, I don't think it's going to be super off topic, but. Uh, did you all see a trailer for Silent Night when you watched the upcoming new John Woo movie? Yes, yeah, they showed it in my screen. I, know. I did not. Oh, okay, all right, then I won't say what my thought was because you guys haven't seen the trailer yet. Well, but, I don't watch trailers, so okay, uh, just, so just go ahead, fine. go for it. Yeah, go go for it. Oh, since we're on this topic of people playing, uh, since Silent Night is a Christmas movie and there's like gadgets, you know, trying to trap bad guys. I wonder if you could say that. This genre movie is like Kevin McAllister from Home Alone, all grown up. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, I see, I see. <laughs> I was like, I didn't even know about that movie until you mentioned it. I just looked oh, okay. it up. What yeah. the Silent, heck? You don't know about Silent Night? No, I don't. What? Dude, it's, it's John Woo's first not... American film in 20 years. I'm saying that. Wow. Yeah. And, it, City, and the movie wow. apparently has no dialogue. Oh, what? Yeah, it's gotta have doves though, right? It's gotta have doves. It's gotta I just think <laughs> I think he either he either loses his voice or he becomes uh he can't hear anymore in the film, so that's why it's mm-hmm. silent. But uh, I don't know. We'll I guess we'll, we'll see how that how they do that. But uh, I'm I'm excited the fact that John Woo is coming out with another American film. All right. Huh. Oh, one more random thought about but about this movie, Killers of the Okay. Um, did any of you? think that Jesse Plemons character or did for any of you did Jesse Plemons character remind you of Tommy Lee Jones's character in No Country for Old Men a little okay. I did think about No Country for Old Men simply because that they, they share one of the same actors still can't remember who he was but he, he ah, dang it this is gonna <laughs> bother me this is gonna bother me I'll come back to you guys in a bit 
Well, Albert, I actually wanted to ask you, like, I guess, uh, as we close uh, our discussion, um, you had mentioned earlier, there are some things that you would have liked to see from the book uh, in this movie. Uh, I was wondering, what, what are some of those things? Like, if you if you haven't already touched upon it already? Oh, I, I've already touched upon it. That that would be the ending, sort of like an acknowledgement that this was a larger scale event than, um, than um, you know, what the confirmed deaths were. Um, that and, and you know this is just this has happened to one group of indigenous people there are so many others who look at the story and say i i got that you know i understand it and, and you just think man what were their stories right it's, it's 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 kind of insane right so there's just so many stories out there of people being exploited systemically right and 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 you know we always think we're over it but yeah, it's it's like I said, there there are different collective memories in different communities throughout this country. I, I think uh, you know one thing that I love about this movie is here's another story that we've put out there, right? And and so um, I, I think the sooner we can get to understanding everybody's story, the I, I think that's a good thing, right? If you I I I mean that in the most positive sense possible especially with sort of in lieu of what's going on in our in in, in american society right now i i think um more exposure is always a good thing because at least it gets us to talk and talking talking is always the first step awesome yeah thanks for sharing those thoughts i think that's i think that's a great way to i think close and end our discussion um so if you listen to this point, thank you so much for joining us uh, for our our discussion on Killers of the Flower Moon. We hope you enjoy the film, uh, like most of us here. Uh, so we hope you, yeah, you know, come back and see you see you next time. Like most of us here, I got that. Yeah, yeah, not all, most. <laughs> see you next time, guys. We're not done yet. No, the supreme leader is wise. I'm sure you are. Blow that piece of junk out of the sky.